You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference was organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear from Michael Boyd, Artistic Director of the RSC, speaking as part of the panel discussion, A National Narrative. It's my great pleasure to introduce our first panel and to launch our discussions on the topic all together now. At the time, of course, that we decided on this topic, we had no idea of what the European parliamentary elections would bring, or indeed the national elections. But events of recent days have made our topic all the more important for us in the arts community to discuss. We've decided to structure the program with a beginning panel that concerns the past, or at least the role that history and heritage plays in addressing the present. And as we move through the weekend, we'll move towards the future and towards addressing that as a question. The first panel's title, A National Narrative, with a question mark, indicates that the notion of nation, its meaning now, and the very concept of it is under question and contestation. We've asked Michael Boyd to kick off the conference with a 20-minute keynote because as head of the RSC, he presides over the authorized national legacy of Shakespeare but also because, as under his associate directorship, there's been both innovative and international Shakespeare productions and the commissioning of new work, and that's been an important focus. Shakespeare has often been appropriated by many nations and cultures, and is therefore a kind of interface nodal point for our discussions of multiculturalism. Howard Brenton, with a long career of playwriting addressing questions of national identity and heritage from the Romans in Britain to Peirce by Shelley, has also treated two conservative prime ministers in very different ways over the course of his career. And he is keenly aware of history and the difference it makes how you tell it. And last, Barry Rudder, reflecting on his own project at Northern Broadsides in West Yorkshire, the company was built, has built up a formidable reputation performing Shakespeare and classical texts with an innovative, popular, and regional style, often in unconventional locations like the Tower of London, cattle markets, etc. And we thought that his uh, combination of region and tradition was an important uh, uh, intersection to include. Howard and Barry will follow Michael with shorter commentaries, about 10 minutes or so, and then we'll throw the panel open for the discussion, which is always the heart of these matters. Each session will have a significant amount of time for our exchange of ideas. Lastly, this program is being recorded by the Warwick Arts Center, and it will be linked uh, as an audio cast to the website of the School of Theater and Performance, the Warwick Arts Center, and the British Theater Consortium website. And there will also be photographs being taken randomly during the day, so don't let that throw you either. All right, thank you very much, and I call now on Michael Boyd. There are, I've, I've carved up given myself an organizing principle to think about, um, six different kinds of history in terms of our approach to Shakespeare and, and how he might hold us by the hand and let us interpret our 
national narrative. There, is, there are straightforward chronological histories which Shakespeare's left us in terms of his two history cycles um, and King John and Henry VIII. He directly, if you like, talks about the history of England um, leading up to his own time and you can address that in chronological order as a proper history. Then there is a different kind of almost view of history which Shakespeare will have bumped into as uh, a child with the Coventry mystery plays and which I bumped into as a young director at the Belgrade Coventry where I directed the mystery plays three years in a row where history is seen in a medieval way, in a concentric way, revolving around the central event of man's life, which was the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And indeed, in the um, Chester mystery cycle, Christ's last words in his Passion on the Cross are numerically central within that cycle of plays. And you start with um, Adam and Eve falling, and you, you end with Adam and Eve coming out of purgatory. Um, there is... Um, a providential, cyclical view of almost simultaneous time that you are able to prefigure and share a prefiguring of the passion of Christ in the story of Abraham and Isaac in the first part and where the, the rhyme scheme, literally the rhyme scheme of the Pharaoh um, uh, will be identical to that of Herod later on after, after Christ has been born. There's it's a sort of simultaneous Einsteinian time, in a way. Um, <clears throat> then there is the history of Shakespeare's own time, the history that he was living through, which was, not, was probably the least easy for him to talk about in terms of censorship. Uh, he was a, a walking miracle, Shakespeare, uh, relative to his contemporaries in terms of getting, staying out of trouble, staying out of jail, getting his plays actually performed. Very little that he had his hand on failed to, to reach the stage. Thomas More, for instance, um, that he had a hand in um, didn't reach the stage in his lifetime. But generally, he did tremendously well at getting past uh, the Lord Chamberlain's office and, 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 and telling a narrative. Um, how did he achieve that? Um, and he achieved, uh, I think the answer is probably by using the, the mirrored prism of, of England's history and reflecting his own time in it. But of course, you've got to remember that that was using time as a cloak to disguise what he was, uh, uh, his attempted narrative of his own times. He also used geography uh, to disguise his narrative of his own times by going off to Italy or Vienna, uh, to Verona or Vienna, as he wanted to uh, address not the life of the, the, the Austrians or the, or the Italians, but uh, uh, the, the life of the English. There's also Shakespeare's own history, how he develops as a writer through his time and, and how his view of history changes as he goes, how his view of his own time changes as he goes. There's another way, which is this, a straightforward, direct mirror for our own times, um, looking at Shakespeare's account of his national narrative and how, how that directly speaks to us now. There's an extent to which we are guilty sometimes of always wanting to see ourselves in Shakespeare and twisting his neck so that he's always looking in our direction. 
Um, and that is an important thing for us to do, but he's also sometimes looking in the other direction towards uh, a lost age of faith, uh, the Catholic past uh, of, of England. And then the, the, the last thing I would in, invite you to think about is um, Shakespeare's iconic place within our own cultural history. What does he do to us? Is he a millstone round the neck of a contemporary playwright or indeed of our culture? Or does he, does he have something more, more useful to say to us? Um, within recent theatrical history, both Barry and I have addressed Shakespeare's history plays. And um, I looked at, history, uh, at Shakespeare's history plays, both in their chronological order, but also allowed myself to get infected um, Infected by the, by the mystery play vision, um, the Einsteinian time, and I saw cycles being repeated within the cycle. Um, the most powerful moment for me, in a way, of that entire enterprise of doing the, the Shakespeare's history plays was in Westminster Abbey, where the company, a collective of actors um, working in the spirit, really, of the idealism of Bertolt Brecht or William Morris or Peter Hall um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a collective of theatre makers um, were about to come into London and tell this story of kings and queens, and there was a nice irony about that. And we'd been invited to go to Westminster Abbey to see, literally, uh, in a way that uh, in advance I thought maybe would be quite boringly literal, um, the kings and queens in their graves, dead and buried. But the images have really stayed with me. I, I, as someone who is not at all English, as someone um, born in Belfast of entirely Scottish extraction, um, but with a, with a Northern Irish heritage, it was astonishing for me to see Henry V's very Spartan throne looking at and right next to Richard II's tomb and I obviously was thinking of Henry before the Battle of Agincourt promising God, uh, t t uh, telling God that he had reburied Richard um, II whom uh, had been uh, effectively murdered by his father and didn't want the sins of that brought upon him as he went into battle. Um, and there, there Henry was, there was Richard, and all the other kings that we've been talking about in the history cycle. But in the middle, there was this extraordinary um, altar, shrine, to Edward the Confessor, something that had struck me as deeply un-English, uh, quite, quite foreign, uh, and actually niches within this, right in the centre, right in the centre of Westminster Abbey, uh, a Catholic sainted English king, where people still do kneel and observe um, rituals 
that have long been uh, in Shakespeare's time uh, uh, banished and, 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 and forgotten now. Um, and I suppose I realized then that Henry VI, in some ways, taken from a purely rational, linear, cause and effect, chronological historical view, Henry VI is always reported by contemporary critics as uh, a, it's a story of a weak king. Um, taken from the, uh, the, the medieval uh, perspective, he's the sainted king. He's the, he's the miracle maker. He is the prophet. He is the magician. And, and I realized that Shakespeare probably was basing that on, 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 on Edward the Confessor and digging up a very ancient and powerful ghost from the past um, for, for the... For, for people to, to, to witness on his, on his stage. Um, Shakespeare gives us a view of Englishness to some people. Uh, if, if he's misappropriated and placed alongside cups of tea and Philip Larkin and easy Church of England patriotism, um, and along with misquoted homilies from... Uh, Richard II, such as discussion of England as this sceptered isle without, without acknowledging that John of Gaunt was actually describing a situation that was not the case um, uh, and an England that was hopelessly divided and badly ruled by irresponsible government. Um, the mistake of the, the cliché of we happy few uh, uh, patriotism uh, of Henry V, forgetting that that Henry V has just been confessing that his father murdered the previous king the night before and feels very uneasy and extremely unhappy as he tries to reassure everyone that we are the happy few. Um, and the quotation, the glib quotation by politics of uh, homilies such as to thine own self be true and thou canst not then be false to any man while forgetting that it comes out of the mouth of the man who put a fratricide on the throne and who... Uh, spies on and tries to entrap his own son. Um, ben Johnson has a lot to answer for in our misreading uh, of Shakespeare. Um, probably trying to do it for Shakespeare's own good to keep Shakespeare even posthumously out of trouble. Um, sweetly dismissing him in a sense as, as a natural, as someone to whom um, the lyricism came easily um, and it was the first case of a, the, 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 the dreadful mistake of killing Shakespeare as a useful cultural stimulus for us uh, by, by talking about universal values for all time um, as, as, a, as a quality uh, about Shakespeare's work. Um, it's like that dreadful Daily Telegraph advert, times change but values don't. Uh, for, for, fortunately, they do, um, and Shakespeare was working out of a very strong set of values in the belly of our history at really the probably most important crossroads in our history, um, and it's only, we can only get good instruction from, from this great teacher, uh, I think, if we recognize that. Um, he's not there... He's not there to give us a unifying 
reassuring icon, but rather a vision, a vivid vision, um, that goes right through to his central stylistic of antithesis, of one idea bashing against another. He is almost crucified on that crossroads. It's an unresolved, his, his, both his history plays and his um, other plays talking about England um, through, through the prism of, of, uh, of measure for measure or, 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 or the civil uh, divide in, in Romeo and Juliet, for instance, um, uh, are, are all um, seen through the, the, the prism of dialogue, dialectic, antithesis, um, and he, he fails to resolve them. And that's the most important distinguishing feature in, in, in the end about Shakespeare. It's why it, I think it's why he is the most performed playwright now is that it's, his work is still a bag of rats, still fighting. Um, and it's fighting between a European uh, Catholic inheritance of the generation from, uh, of his father and before and uh, a more insular Northern European Protestantism between um, uh, great crises uh, 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 and, and fractures between the nation state and the, the individual believer, whereby, as now, reflecting on to the idea of a mirror for our times, as now individuals are genuinely torn, are the Spanish, potential Spanish invaders uh, a threat to us? Um, or are they our saviour for the Catholic population? Um, and there, there are citizens of our country today who uh, are, are given uh, suspicious looks uh, if, they, if they are caught in their dilemma as to whether they owe loyalty uh, elsewhere as well as to this country. They feel uh, English, but they also feel allegiance elsewhere in terms of their faith. Um, the, the view of Shakespeare as the first great modern, I think, is, is, has done a great deal of damage. Um, I was taught at school uh, a vision of English history where we emerged from a, a soup of the Dark Ages uh, until round about Elizabeth and Shakespeare's time. Then we began to get three-dimensional characters and um, we began to get sensible and uh, more rational uh, and all we needed was to march on towards the Enlightenment and the advances of science and the Industrial Revolution and the, 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 the road to perfectibility of Englishness and indeed of Western culture uh, would, would be complete and travelled. And I think if there's one thing that, that Shakespeare can do for us, uh, and that he does do for us if we listen, is to give the lie to that um, and to open up the moment when our culture became to some extent disembodied, where we started forgetting to sing songs, forgetting feast days that come from um, ancient embodied 
pagan ceremony. Um, in Twelfth Night, uh, uh, Toby Belch to Malvolio, um, do you think just because you're virtuous that there'll be no more cakes nailed? Um, is talking about St. Anne's feast day. And the, the complete abolition of the sort of ritual festive calendar that occurred uh, just before Shakespeare's time, the abolition even of purgatory. Um, Shakespeare is caught up in the rupture of that and insisting in Hamlet there is a purgatory. Um, Hamlet's father is coming back. Uh, there, is more, um, there is more than we, th than we think we understand, even if, 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 we've, uh, even if we have been to Wittenberg and learnt some of the new scepticisms um, and some of the new, more uh, rational, less superstitious certainties uh, 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 of Protestantism. Um, Shakespeare him, is also, his early plays are also patronized um, along with the Dark Ages before Shakespeare's time. Henry the Sixth plays are consistently referred to as apprentice pieces. And uh, I, I would argue that rather than being uh, apprentice pieces at the beginning of Shakespeare's life, they, they constitute, together with the second tetralogy, um, they constitute a last great medieval masterpiece. Um, I don't think Shakespeare was trying to uh, look forward uh, exclusively to our time. I think he was also remembering in a way that uh, was very, uh, remembering that we have, a, we have a broken society which can speak to a broken society now. And I, after looking at the, the, the huge tomb of Edward the Confessor with the niches there for praying, we went round and we looked at the tomb also of um, Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots which and James commissioned them both and it's, it's noticeable that Mary Queen of Scots grave is, is much more splendid than Elizabeth's but round by Elizabeth's there was it was the day that um, Ian Paisley and Frank McGuinness had first been photographed smiling and joking together and where they started to earn their their nickname, the Chuckle Brothers, and there was a there was a stone um, on the on the on the on the floor, I think dating from maybe round about the Good Friday Agreement, dedicated to those who had suffered as a result of the conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, and on that day, when Paisley and McGuinness were were were, were captured joking together. I found it profoundly moving to be coming from the narrative of religious and civil conflict and lost, lost memories, um, to be right in the belly of those memories and on a day when a narrative which is easily seen as dismissible ancient history looking at Shakespeare. Um, but it was a narrative that had only just reached some kind of 
peace, some kind of brief peace um, with, with, with Paisley and McGuinness. And the problems being addressed under the guise of looking at the House of York or the House of Lancaster, the problems of a, of a, of a broken nation being addressed in Shakespeare's history plays, was something that in, in, in my life was, 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 was still alive. Um, half the population of, well, more than half the population of Derry didn't get the vote until the 1970s, effectively, not properly. Um, so I was always alert, I suppose, to Shakespeare's view of history being most fundamentally a longing for an embodied version of, of Englishness. Um, I'm, I'm not speaking as a, as, a, as, a, as a Catholic, let alone a, or as a believer, but the, the lesson from Shakespeare, um, the cry for a retrieval of our embodied culture um, is one that I think is particularly pertinent to theatre which is the art form that most embodies the full human presence, the shared full human presence in one space, real space, real time, and that is equipped to address our failure to achieve consensus now, um, which is equipped to, more equipped than any other art form, I think, to um, to help us learn together the skills of civil discourse and of shared behaviours. And increasingly, I think, if British theatre is to succeed, I would argue that it will follow the embodied, metaphysical, lyrical, playful, magical realist example of Shakespeare rather than the linear, rational, logical tradition of, say, Bernard Shaw. Um, in a sense, I, I'll, I'll, I, I think I'll end now by, by saying that purely on a professional level, Shakespeare's a, a good and a shining example for contemporary British theatre. Um, and I, I think there are, there are, many, there are many ways in, in which we can benefit from, from bringing him into our contemporary theatre. He, he is our best model, and he's, he's no millstone. Thank you. This conference was supported by the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway.